What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 247. And today we are going to be taking a look at a very disturbing and very frustrating case out of Bighorn County, Montana. We're going to be talking about Casera Stops Pretty Places. And we're going to be talking about just the epidemic of murdered and missing indigenous women, not only in this country, but I mean, really around the world. And mm -hmm. uh, But it's just, it's an absolute crisis that doesn't get enough coverage anywhere. And when you start diving into the statistics and really looking at it, you know, from sort of a bird's eye view, I guess you really start to see just the magnitude of how horrific this is. I mean, there's just no, there's no explanation for it as well. Like we obviously know lots of factors that, that are a part of this issue, but mm -hmm. it's even more frustrating when you realize just how big of an issue it is. And there's little to no action being taken by mm -hmm. the authorities, by the government and very little tracking of these cases as well. Yeah. Oftentimes these cases are just flat out ignored by the authorities and by the media as well. And it's pretty crazy when you think about it because indigenous women and girls are murdered at a rate that's 10 times higher than all other ethnicities. And murder is the third leading cause for death of indigenous women. That's insane. I know. It's the third leading cause of death. Yeah. I think most people don't know that. That just, should I mean, be like alarm bell should be going off everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this is just unsaid in, in most places and, un, you know, politicians aren't talking about this. Like I think Joe Biden talked about it maybe once um, in a speech after he got elected mm -hmm. and, you know, they were talking about getting a task force together and things like that to start to do something about this issue. But then when it actually comes down to brass tacks, they don't do anything like it, it or it's like, well, we don't want to step on the local authorities toes. And, you know, like there's this big issue and just, just in law enforcement in general of like, cases where local law enforcement does absolutely nothing and federal law enforcement doesn't want to get involved because of jurisdictional issues yeah. or you know it's people don't want to you know step on each other's toes and so what ends up happening is nothing mm -hmm. nothing gets done mm -hmm. and so families just sit around frustrated and you know banging their head against the wall because the local law enforcement won't do anything so they say okay if you're not going to do anything I'm going to go up above you and then they go to federal law enforcement and they just are like, oh, sorry, we can't do anything because they're already investigating yeah, it. Everyone's but just not pointing their fingers at the other. And it leaves these families to just suffer with the pain alone and to get absolutely no answers. And, you know, how do they even go about moving on with their lives when there is nothing being done? You know, right. like how how do you even begin to continue on with your life when your family member or friend or someone in your community has been murdered? And nothing has been done. That just has just got to be the worst feeling in the whole world. Yeah, same with the missing because you don't even know what happened to that that loved one. Yeah, and yeah. so you you are dealing with both realities of they could be dead or they could be out there somewhere and potentially in harm's way. And mm -hmm. there's nobody doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the issue when it comes to indigenous people in the United States and Canada is so huge. But yeah, there are, you know, indigenous people being murdered and missing all over the world and governments all over really have done nothing about it. And I mean, there's a lot of different factors that, that play into it. And I mean, the number one that comes to my mind is just 
looking at the history of colonialism and mm-hmm. um, kind of how the whole world and civilization has gotten to this point, it's by taking from indigenous peoples yep. and exploiting them and their resources in order to further, you know, mm-hmm. an agenda or some other people's goals, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I actually just covered another case out of Canada, Chelsea Poorman, um, on my YouTube channel, and that just went up this past Monday. Um, and that that case was unbelievable. I mean, the police there did absolutely nothing. It's always the same thing when it comes to these cases. I don't think I've heard of one case where a native person went missing or was murdered that the police actually did anything. Yeah. Or they'll they'll say they're doing something and then it's very clear that they're actually not. And it's like, what do you do at that point? Because I think one of the biggest things that we've discovered throughout our our time of covering true crime and diving into cases similar to this is that what you find is that in many places across this country and in Canada and other places around the world, oftentimes the police departments, law enforcement have their own internal issues. There's prejudice, there's uh, racism, there's all sorts of issues. There could Mm -hmm, be just mm -hmm. full on corruption within the police department where they're actually committing criminal acts themselves. And therefore there's this culture of we must protect ourselves above all else. And so oftentimes that means not taking action in something where it might reflect badly on somebody within their department or somebody higher up, um, whether it's in the uh, justice department or DA's office. And we just see this over and over and over again. And when it comes to missing and murdered indigenous women, it is like, that is the case. I'd say like nine times out of 10, if not more. Mm Mm-hmm. So it is, it's very, very frustrating because, you know, it's like, what, what do you do? What do you do in this situation other than what we're doing today? And that's raising awareness about it and Mm -hmm. hopefully getting more people educated on the reality of the situation. But it's like, there is systemic issues within our criminal justice system that need to be fixed. And we need to completely start over with this, but it's like, how do we go about doing that? And that's, what's frustrating is it's the playing field is not level no and what we're learning is that even if you vote somebody into these positions of power once they're in that position of power they immediately fall in line to what's been going on for the last 200 years Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter if they're this outspoken candidate they get everybody riled up and like yeah you're gonna really make change and guess what anything to get elected as soon as they get elected it's like crickets it's like where'd they go they're gone and so what do you do? What what can we do other than bang down the doors of 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 the courts and that's I mean that's really all you can halls. do is is to get loud and to raise as much awareness about it and get involved locally. Um, there's there's many marches and you know protests and rallies for um, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, missing and murdered Indigenous people in general. There's like several different movements and you can find what's going on locally to you and. And try to get involved and just, you know, the more people that are there, the more faces, the the angrier the crowd gets. I mean, I should rephrase that. The louder the crowd gets. Yeah. Obviously, we don't want to incite violence or anything no, like that. But, no, that's not what I meant. But like, you know. But the, if enough people come together and the voice mm-hmm. is loud enough, then hopefully somebody will hear or be forced to hear 
or the media will be forced to cover it because it's such a big deal that they need yeah. to cover this mm-hmm. and somebody will do something about it. Because ultimately, if you think about it, these people in power don't want this to happen. That's why they try to shut it down because that's a huge pain for them to deal with. You know, none of them want people no. banging at their doors. Well, that's, but, I mean, what we see across the board with all true crime yeah. cases too is the more pressure that they're getting from the people, right. the more likely they are to get off their asses and actually do something. But even then... But yeah, We've for the seen most they part, they don't do anything. Yeah, so it's, and for the most part, these cases are just swept under the rug. They're not investigated properly, and local authorities just blame the tribes for not regulating their people, uh, which is terrible. And then with that, the police wash their hands of any responsibility to investigate these cases properly and to actually take action. And oftentimes we see them not even communicating with these families, not even giving them the common decency to let them know what's going on in the investigation or let them know if they've found a body. Um, I saw that in the the case I just covered as well with Chelsea Poorman. And that's something that we're going to be touching on today as well. We see that in this case. And yeah, it definitely should leave you feeling frustrated. Well, the other thing, too, is like this goes all the way up to the highest levels uh, of our government, of our, our justice system. I mean, As of 2016, the National Crime Information Center has reported 5,712 cases of missing American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls. But shockingly, the U.S. Department of Justice Missing Persons Database has only reported 116 cases, which is another theme that plays into today's case as well of like, oh, you're reporting your, your loved one is missing. Well, I'm not actually going to file a report for you. I'm just going to jot down some notes where it'll go absolutely nowhere. And so the the actual statistics are probably significantly higher than what's even being reported. And when you think mm-hmm. about that for a second, that that is something that should scare all of us because th- why? Why are you not accurately reporting this data? What's the point behind that? And and it just I don't know, it just leads me down this 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 dark dark well, it's like hole. We know I'm, what the point is, right? Yeah. I mean Ah, uh, it's it's just so frustrating. I'm I'm just getting frustrated talking about this because I just am like, what do we do? No, it makes you feel very helpless. Other than try to try to get people's voices heard and mm-hmm. get people talking about this and educate people is all we can do. And you know, even though primarily victims of this are women and girls, um, you know, human trafficking victims of violence, mm-hmm. um, men are also victims of violence at an alarmingly high rate. Um, when it comes to Native Americans, 82% of indigenous men are victims of violence in their lifetime. Um, and it's horrible. I mean, it's just like seems anyone who is in this community is of a potential is, victim. Of, yeah, exactly. At major is already at risk. risk. Yeah. Because I, I think what you'll see, and, and this is what's going on in Bighorn County, is that you have tribal land and you have these towns that sit either right next to it or you know some of it overlaps and you have native peoples that have been living there forever and then you've got white populations that also live there and what you find in a lot of these these towns across america is that there is major prejudice there horrible Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's just it's crazy to me that we're still not evolved to the point where we've gotten past this and figured out how to come together and, and it just shows how deeply rooted this is within our history and just human history as a whole. I mean, the case that we're talking about today takes place in Bighorn County, Montana, 
And this county is the most dangerous place for indigenous women in America. It's the epicenter of a crisis that we've been talking about, missing and murdered indigenous women. And in the town of Hardin, Montana alone, there were 27 cases of missing and murdered indigenous women as of October 2021. 27 cases. So one of the other factors here is the fact that through many of these reservations, including the Crow Reservation up there, busy interstates run through it. Up there, it's Interstate 90 that crosses through. And the land is also close to Canada and major drug trafficking ports. So these and other issues with security and crime on the reservation make it a perfect storm for issues like human trafficking. It makes it, you know, cartels going through those areas as well. We've actually have a little clip we'll play here of a former Crow Nation police chief explaining this issue a little bit. Let's roll it. We're between two communities right now. We currently have no radio service. We have no cell phone service. We have no ways, unless we had a sat phone, we wouldn't have any way to communicate with anybody. And that contributes. It's, it's very wide open. It's very desolate out here. The I-90 corridor, anybody that's going to Denver, going to South Dakota, um, trying to get to the West Coast, uh, it all travels right through here for the most part. So we get a lot of drug trafficking out on the interstate. And, you know, with the crime, the drugs, the domestic violence, it's all a perfect breeding ground for people to go missing. I mean, that's what we just, if you know anything about human trafficking, the human trafficking hotspots in our country are along these major interstates because it is very easy to abduct or kidnap somebody and then get out of town because you're right on the interstate. And so obviously that's a huge factor. I think it was a good point. Just it's such a desolate area. Mm -hmm. It's there's not a lot of people up there. And so infrastructure is, is not great. There's not a lot of money up there. It's very, very, a lot of poverty, lower income, uh, living up there. And so there just isn't, hasn't been that demand for telecom infrastructure to get up there. And the fact that there's areas of, of our country still without cell phone service in, in 2023 is, is kind of mind blowing. It is. It. it really is. And like you said, unless you have a sat phone, you could be in an area where there's absolutely no way to call for help or it's so dangerous. Yeah. It's like, it really does kind of create this kind of perfect storm of, of different elements that contribute to the the rate of, of people going missing and being murdered. I mean, this is a crazy statistic here. Indigenous people make up just 6.7% of the population in Montana, yet it makes up 29% of the missing persons. That's horrific. It makes absolutely no sense. And how often when someone does go missing who is white, do we see tons of you know, coverage for them, quick action. I mean, not in all cases, but oftentimes, and then the majority of these cases, there's just nothing. It's very, it's very, I can, it's very frustrating because we've had a few cases in, in recent history involving a, a young white female and it was the, the top news story across all outlets and which doesn't always happen. doesn't always happen but, but more often than not yeah but let's be real like it's most of the time that's your chances the case. of getting coverage are much higher if you are white than if you are indigenous or another ethnicity it's just it's facts and what doesn't make sense to me is in one of the mo one of the most recent cases like this they were moved across state lines and guess who gets involved the fbi 
I mean, you've got mm-hmm. all these law enforcement agencies that are expending yeah, funny how they pick and choose millions of dollars in resources to to help locate this individual, and yet women are being picked off of the reservation and mm-hmm. taken all all sorts of places, and there's absolutely nothing done. Mm-mm. Not, not even, even local report. coverage. Yeah, not even a report or media coverage. And so with the interstates going through, you've got truckers coming through. It's so, so easy to just, it, it creates the perfect opportunity window for somebody who's a predator to hit a truck yeah. stop, see somebody, and they and know on. they're going to disappear and nobody's going to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there's whole worlds of, of these types of people online who communicate about this. And to me, this seems like a much more organized thing than I think any of us want to even think about or, or realize. But I think, I think there is like, as we know, there's sick communities online and there's ways that people connect about where to do crimes of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so this is clearly information that's gotten out because it, it, it doesn't make sense for the rates to be as high as they are if, if that's not the case. There's clearly communication going on. Plus jurisdictional issues help make Bighorn County in particular a hotspot for these types of cases. And these issues are obviously seriously affecting how the cases are handled. For example, in Bighorn County, like we already discussed earlier, it's not always clear which agency or agencies are charged with handling a case, whether that's the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Bighorn County Sheriff, or FBI. And if the crime occurs within the county but outside of tribal land, it's the Bighorn County Sheriff's duty to investigate. If a crime occurs on tribal land, it's the responsibility of the BIA or the FBI to investigate. But if a non-tribal person commits a crime on a reservation, the Bureau of Indian Affairs can't even make an arrest because they don't have jurisdiction, which is such, I can't even imagine how frustrating that is for them and for their their community. That's scary. It is. It's terrifying. And the FBI usually waits around until local police invite them to conduct their own investigation and whether they'll actually get involved after they are invited is you know to be determined why this hasn't been this issue hasn't been fixed or addressed yet is beyond me why why are we if there's such an epidemic of crime why has there not been jurisdictional Mm -hmm. changes made to allow for because as we know if you look you know there's a there's a youtuber i've watched recently who goes on ride-alongs with police on uh, tribal tribal land and reservations oh, really? and he he interviews them what's it called uh, uh i'll have to i'll link it below i can't remember his name um he, he he does this quite a bit with a lot of different law enforcement agencies but there are so few officers on tribal lands to cover vast amounts of area where it's just literally impossible to act you know safely patrol and effectively conduct law enforcement duties because you're you're there's so few of you for such vast amounts of land that it's so easy to find isolated areas where no one would ever see you and mm-hmm. so it again the opportunity is just so high yeah and and with authorities you know not even wanting to get involved in these cases in the first place all of these jurisdictional issues just give them a convenient excuse basically as to why they don't you know, pour resources into these cases. It's really just systemic racism happening right before our eyes. And the results are devastating. The sorrow of losing a loved one all too soon are very common in Bighorn County. And so many families have been left with no answers, no justice, and no public outcry. 
They struggle to get their loved ones justice that they deserve. And each time they have to go back and share their stories, obviously, it's emotionally re-traumatizing every time. And there are far too many families crying out for justice and getting no response at all. And that includes the family and the victim that we are going to be speaking about today. Hey, Sarah stops pretty places. 14-year-old girl found dead. Missing girl found dead. Missing and endangered person advisory. The families wonder if enough can be accomplished to save their girls before they are found dead. Why are Native women going missing or being murdered? What's the reason? We have so many cases where our women are being misclassified racially. I think everybody's still really in the dark, um, and I think that's why we're upset. We just don't feel like we're being treated like people. She was found, I believe, by a deputy in town in somebody's yard. What is happening with all of these systems that are supposed to be in place to keep people safe? There have been a lot of concerns that the federal agencies don't respond, that they don't take these crimes seriously. Why is it that we are more likely to be raped and murdered than go to college? Why is it that our young girls are just trying to survive? We shouldn't be standing here, because Sarah should be in school. Sarah Ruth Stops Pretty Places was born on August 14, 2001 to her parents, Gerilyn Boltail and Alan Craig stops. She had many siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, and other relatives that loved her dearly, and she loved them with all her heart. Kaysera was affiliated with the Crow, Northern Cheyenne, Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arakara tribes. She was essentially raised by many family members, including her aunt, Grace Boltail, and her paternal grandmother, Yolanda Fraser. Yolanda was actually Kaysera's legal guardian, and she lived with her in Missoula, Montana. Kaysera was very nurturing and protective of her siblings, who absolutely adored her. Their situation at home, though, was not very stable, and their parents were big drinkers who sometimes used meth. Obviously, this deeply hurt and upset Kaysera as she grew up, and it gave her a bit of a tough exterior. She had run away about a half a dozen times in the past, and on some of these occasions, her parents had reported her missing. So unfortunately, some people labeled her as troubled. It's been reported that Kaysera had actually been previously kidnapped and held against her will, but Grace Boltail says she does not know where the story comes from, and it appears to be a rumor. But Kaysera was still a funny, kind, magnetic girl whose personality just naturally drew people to her. She was a bright person who really liked to goof around and have fun, and she was a hard worker too. She was very involved with her tribal community, and from the early age of 14, Kaysera participated in the very sacred sun dance ceremony. She was also very smart, but had undiagnosed dyslexia, so sometimes she struggled with school, but Kaysera worked her absolute hardest to get good grades so she could go on to do what she loved. She was a very athletic person. She played basketball, football, and ran cross country, but she was just as artistic as she was athletic. She performed in multiple school theater productions, and she dreamt of becoming an actress and a performer one day. Her goal was to one day go to college for theater and then maybe move to New York after. She also once helped her Aunt Grace, who is a professor at UW-Madison, with her postdoctoral field research. Kaysera had a lot to look forward to. She was going to graduate high school soon after she finished her upcoming senior year at Hellgate High School. During August of 2018, Kaysera was looking forward to attending the annual Crow Fair. This is basically a big Crow powwow on the reservation with dancing, bull and horse riding parades, and rodeo. Kaysera and her family, like many others, would travel to the fair to camp and hang out with family and friends. There was an incident at the fair, though. Her 15-year-old brother, Isaias, got into a fight with another boy at the Crow Fair, and the police got involved. 
Some of the officers began to beat on her brother, and Kaysera started recording. Days before Kaysera went missing, she posted the video on social media of the police beating her brother at the Crow Fair. Her brother was in a wheelchair, and some of the officers who beat him were Bighorn County deputies. Here's the video Kaysera took that spread on social media. Just a warning, obviously, it's upsetting to see this. And uh, the commentary you'll hear is from her aunt, Grace Boltel. So this officer was on duty at Crow Fair. He beat Kaysera's younger brother. He was 15 at the time. And he's also a Bighorn County deputy. And to my knowledge, that officer is Jeremy Middlestead. We know that he was on the scene from the coroner's report, that he was on the scene and he was an investigating officer. I don't know anything else about him because we cannot find any information about who the sheriff's deputies are. So there's no report from this incident with police, which is completely wrong. Police claim that Isaias was acting aggressively and resisting arrest, hence their use of force. Due to their conduct, the U.S. Attorney's Office's Civil Rights Division opened up an investigation or review into the way the officers handled the incident. As a result, the officers were reprimanded for their conduct. Reprimanded. That's it. What does that even mean? Were well, they fired. suspended for a few days and then brought back on the force? If that, I mean, I in don't what know world exactly do what all these did. grown men need to use that kind of force on a 15 year old boy in a wheelchair? How does that make any sense? I mean, clearly there, there's something else going on there and obviously it's hard to see fully in the middle video but they are like wailing on him i mean you can see an officer literally coming down with mm -hmm. his fist over and over again and i mean that's that is not any sort of police trained tactic to use that's just beating somebody and thankfully she was able to record it yeah but again it didn't end up really mattering that much well i mean it kind of factors into this case too so i mean it it was important it, it's definitely important but like no, I mean, all those officers should the, be right. terminated after an incident like that. And Absolutely. I'm sure that's something that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And also the U.S. Attorney's Office never even interviewed the family or Isaias. <laughs> so they just looked at the video like, oh, yeah, that's doesn't look right. If this was a young white boy in a wheelchair. This would be on CNN. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So okay, Sarah had just turned 18 earlier that month and she still had a lot of friends in Hardin. And now that she lived in Missoula, she didn't get to see those friends that often. Kaysera was pretty used to staying with her aunt, Priscilla, who lived in Hardin when she visited. So while her family was at the Crow Fair, Kaysera asked Yolanda if she could stay with her aunt, Priscilla, for a few days and celebrate her birthday with some friends. And Yolanda agreed. So this brings us to August 24th, 2019. Kaysera asked her aunt, Priscilla, if she could go out and celebrate her birthday with some friends. Her best friend, 17-year-old Nakia Spotted Horse, and 19-year-old Isabella Anderson Viejas. Isabella was actually Priscilla's cousin who lived with her, and she gave the girls permission to go out. And Kaysera was so excited about going out that she actually changed her outfit three times that night. And that evening, the girls were picked up by Isabella and her boyfriend, 23-year-old Natosi Summers. Isabella and Natosi had a young child together, so they left this child in Priscilla's care for the night. So they all went back to the house that Natosi shared with his family on Rangeview Drive in Hardin. And the plan was to party, and then the girls would go back and be at Priscilla's house by midnight. 
Natosi was the one that provided the girls with alcohol. Everyone was hanging out and drinking and everything seemed relatively normal. But at some point in the night, Kaysera and Nakia could hear Natosi and Isabella arguing downstairs. Natosi came up and grabbed Isabella and she kept trying to pull away, but he wouldn't let her go. So at that point, the girls were so freaked out and they decided to leave. As they were heading out the door, Natosi grabbed Isabella and wouldn't let her leave. Kaysera stepped in and was trying to stop Natosi from hurting Isabella. She told him to quit it and to let her go and that she didn't have to stay there. Once the girls got outside, there was a lot of yelling going on and a big commotion. Natosi had run after Isabella and grabbed her again, trying to apologize to her and get her to stay. Nakia and Kaysera didn't know what to do. The couple just wasn't listening to them. A neighbor who was upset by the noise of them arguing purposely locked and unlocked his car from inside his house to disperse them. Shortly after the neighbor's car went off, a police car drove by and turned around, and that spooked them. So they all three ran in separate directions, and that's the last time Kaysera was seen alive. Eventually, once they thought the cop car was gone, Isabella and Nakia came back to the spot that they'd been at before, and they looked for Kaysera in the area, but they couldn't find her. The girls thought she could have still been hiding from the police. They called out her name, but no one responded. They didn't even hear a rustle from the bushes, so they decided to check back at Natosi's house. When they got there, Natosi was in the house, and he was obviously not happy, so he wasn't willing to let them look inside or behind the house outside for Kaysera and he got pretty angry when they even asked. Then Natosi got in his car, the same one that they all came in, and started chasing the girls with it. And they tried to run as fast as they could to hide from Natosi, and he had been chasing them down all the alleys and streets. And once they saw that Natosi had left the area, the two girls decided to walk back to Priscilla's house. Isabella was crying, saying that she was scared and wanted to go home. Kaysera was a smart girl who always made it home before this. So by that point, they figured that she had walked back to her aunt's house after the cop car drove by. So both girls made it back to Priscilla's house that night, but Kaysera never did. Her social media went dark after the 24th, which was also very weird because Kaysera was usually very active on her phone and she hadn't contacted any of her family members, which was also really strange. Once Yolanda found out Kaysera didn't make it home, she contacted Kaysera's relatives to try and find her. That next day, August 25th, Kaysera was supposed to meet up with her mom so the two of them could plan a visit to see family in North Dakota, and she never showed up to meet her mom. And that same day, Kaysera's aunt Priscilla tried to file a missing persons report with the Bighorn County Police. However, she was told that she couldn't file a report for 48 hours. Which is not even true. No. Anyone in Montana is in these circumstances actually considered a child until they are 21 years old and can be record, reported missing right away. So there's no waiting period. So that's extremely suspicious as to why the police would not file a report once the family requested them to do so. I mean, it's illegal and we see this all the time. Those types of laws are so outdated and and still are brought up to this day. We still see cases where families are told they have to wait, you know, 24, 48, 72 hours, whatever it is. And it's just it's just a lie for the police to not do anything, do which we all know that that time is the most crucial. Do you think they're maliciously lying? Yes. Or are they just misinformed about the laws? They're I, fucking police. Yeah. They better know the laws. They, they they're don't. just lying. They no, don't. They, they do. A lot of police don't know the laws that they are actually are there to enforce. Believe it or not, I watch a lot of 
uh, First Amendment YouTubers. And wow. what you see time and time again is they don't even know the Constitution half the time. They don't even realize that they're violating your constitutional rights. That's a big issue within law enforcement is that a lot of law enforcement officers, especially lower level, don't understand these laws. So it's, is it possible that they were just, that's just what they've been told by somebody and that's just what they said? Or are they maliciously lying to prevent somebody from doing this? I think a lot of times it's just, they don't fucking know the law because they're not being trained or educated properly. I think most of the time it's, it's maliciously lying. It's laziness. It's, Sure, I, I think certainly, especially in these cases. Yeah, I, I would say so for this particular case. Most likely, this is because they don't want to start looking for her. Yeah, I don't know which situation is worse though. Them not fucking knowing <laughs> know, the they're, law that they're supposed to represent, no. or them just being lazy and and lying to families. Directly Both to are their huge face issues in the scariest moments of their life. Right. So it's it's just horrific and so frustrating. There should just be like some way to do this without having to go down to the police station. Like you should just be able to file this and it just goes into a system that automatically kicks it out to Wouldn't everybody. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Be great to update the systems a little bit. So in Kaysera's case, a missing persons report was never actually filed. Ever. Within two hours of a report being taken, all law enforcement officers on duty were supposed to be notified of Kaysera's disappearance as were any law enforcement agencies in the country within jurisdiction. Kaysera was also supposed to be entered into a National Missing Children's Database, but none of this happened either. When Priscilla visited the Bighorn County Sheriff's Department, she didn't think the officer she talked to her took her seriously. And guess what that officer's name was? Deputy Jeremy Middlestead. Priscilla said she wasn't given a form to fill out, and Jeremy just jotted down notes on a tablet he kept in his pocket. She didn't think the Sheriff's Department was handling Kaysera's case professionally at this point. Police also didn't put up any sort of missing persons flyers. They didn't search or do anything like that. They never even filed a missing persons report for her, period. So Jeremy just straight up didn't do his job, which to me is very, very suspicious. Mm-hmm. Considering the history there. Yes. Meanwhile, the family is desperately just trying to search for Kaysera and make sure she's okay. Bighorn County Sheriff's Department have denied ever being contacted this early about Kaysera's disappearance. So the family has questioned whether or not Priscilla went to report Kaysera missing on the 25th. But it's also true that the Bighorn County Sheriff's Department did not take this case seriously. Here's what Yolanda had to say about the investigation. How hard was it to get them to act? They really didn't act on it. They said she's probably just out with them. Her friends or... What disturbs you about the investigation into Kaysera's case? The um, really lack of investigation. On the 28th, Priscilla made a Facebook post saying that Kaysera was missing. Meanwhile, the police had done absolutely nothing to help look for her. So the family continued to search and worry for days. So this brings us to the evening of the 29th, five days after Kaysera first disappeared. A jogger named Jason Cummings was running his usual route down Mitchell Avenue when he noticed something odd in his neighbor's yard. A large number of crows had been flying down to it. And when he took a closer look, he was shocked to see a body lying face down in a pile of debris. Jason immediately called the police and officers quickly arrived at the scene on Mitchell Avenue and Rangeview Drive. And what they found, sadly, was Kaysera's body badly decomposed, lying face down in a pile of tree trimmings. The spot where she was discovered was actually next door to the house that she was last seen at. 
Natosi's house. So it doesn't seem like it would have been that hard to find her if they had actually looked. Here is the spot that Case Sarah was found with commentary from Grace Boltail. On August 29th, um, someone was passing by here and saw a body laying here in this yard. You know, Kisara was, she was 5'6 in height. This fence here, it comes up to, you know, I'm, I'm 5'11, so this fence here comes up to, like, like my mid-chest. Um, as tall as I am, I would have a difficult time getting over this fence. Um, so Kesara was a foot taller, and I think she meant a foot shorter. And, and it's mm -hmm. fence all the way around. So whichever way she allegedly got in by herself, that that would have been extremely hard for her to do. And um, also, these people are. Oh, were trying to scare them that night, warn them, uh, you know, to get away from their house because they were they were locking and locking their car doors, making noise. Um, so it makes no sense that Kesara would run into their yard when, um, you know, they obviously were trying to get them to go away. This is also a like fairly open suburban neighborhood. Yeah, it, on on a street too. Yeah, cars passed. Seems shocking that no one would have seen her before this. Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious that she wasn't there for this entire time. Maybe we don't know that for sure. We don't know that for sure, but that's the, most likely yeah, that's the direction I lean in. But a lot of news sources out there say that K. Sarah's body was found wrapped in plastic. And we just want to mention that the whole wrapped in plastic piece of information came from B Billings Gazette. But we don't know where they got that information from. And it's unconfirmed. And it's up to police to confirm or deny this piece of information. But they have yet to confirm this or a lot of other things in K. Sarah's case. So even the family doesn't know whether or not it's true. There is one writer out there who believes that maybe the police wrapped the body when they got there, like a body bag type of thing, and a passerby saw this and thought the body had been covered in plastic or something, which, I mean, she was decomposed out there. But again, we don't know for sure whether or not this is true. Jason the jogger said that the police did not treat the property like a crime scene. Instead, people were going in and out as they pleased. It bothered Jason so much that he suggested the police secure the scene, but this didn't happen either. The property owner was a man named Steve Schaff. Okay, Sarah and Steve did not know each other, and he was in Billings buying auto parts when her body was discovered. His son was the one that notified him that a body had been found in his yard. At first, he thought his son was talking about roadkill or a bear that had been shot, so he was shocked to hear these were human remains. But the police say they didn't know who the body belonged to at this point. Whether or not that's true has been a big debate. But what we do know is that K. Sarah's family still didn't know she had been found at this point. And they would end the day without any sort of police notification. Kaysera's aunt, Persilia, had gotten a text later that day from a coworker who lived on Rangeview. She told Persilia that Kaysera's body had been found behind the house on Mitchell and Rangeview. But when she went to the scene, the body was already bagged. 
She requested to identify the body, but an officer on the scene refused to tell her whether or not the body was possibly Kaysera's. However, Persalia did not tell the family about this incident, so they wouldn't be further upset. So after her body was discovered, Kaysera was taken to the crime scene lab in Billings as a Jane Doe. An autopsy was conducted the next day, and her family was not notified a body was found, and they were not asked to help potentially identify it. And another really frustrating point, too, is they, I mean, her cell phone was on her. She had it with her. Why couldn't they have identified it that way? It's Mm -hmm. not that hard to do. And the sheriff's department has said at this point they didn't even know K. Sarah was missing because no report had been filed. There was nothing for them to potentially compare the body to. That's what they say. This discovery of K. Sarah's body did not make the news at all, which was really odd. The local paper is always in contact with the local police asking for daily updates on notable police activity. So if a body was found badly decomposed in a hardened backyard, the paper obviously would have wanted to know about it and report on it. We're going to circle back to the video Kaysera took at the Crow Fair for a minute. This was a video of police beating Kaysera's brother that led to an investigation. Kaysera's family and lawyers have reason to believe that one of the Bighorn County Sheriff's deputies under investigation for this incident was a responding officer when her body was discovered. This deputy, who we've mentioned before, Jeremy Middlestead, had become the lead investigator on the case. And I really wonder if this is by chance or on purpose. But he quickly recused himself from the case, and Captain Mike Fuss of the Bighorn County Sheriff's Office took over as the lead investigator. Later, Mike told Yolanda that this was because Jeremy, quote-unquote, couldn't handle it. Oh, man, just so suspicious, all of this. The first week after Kaysera's body was found, the investigation halted due to personnel issues. There had been no officer available to assign to her case in the days after Officer Middlestead recused himself. On August 31st, Yolanda's brother contacted her with some news. His granddaughter had read a tweet on Twitter that said, The body found in Hardin on the 29th was 17-year-old Stops Girl. She immediately passed on the news to her family out in Hardin. So the next day, September 1st, Gerilyn and Priscilla went to the Bullis mortuary to see if the body belonged to Kaysera. The family did not see the body, but they were told that it did not belong to Kaysera. So obviously they were relieved, but now they still had to try and locate her. Isn't that insane? They had to find out from Twitter. But even at this point, Mm -hmm. they still haven't gotten official news or even a request to come and identify the remains. Nope. By law enforcement. Twitter. On September 3rd, the county applied for dental records. These dates are not fully confirmed, but from around September 4th to September 7th, Kaysera's body was shuffled back and forth between the Montana DOJ crime lab and the coroner Terry Bullis funeral home. So then 10 more days of searching passed with no sign of Kaysera and no word from authorities. Clearly, the police knew from the day that they found the body on Rangeview and Mitchell that it belonged to Kaysera. But the family kept trying to report her missing, and the sheriff's department kept not filing the report. And yet they never bothered to notify the family. They just let them search for her. The DOJ confirmed that the body belonged to Kaysera on September 9th. They had to identify her through dental records because of how badly her body was decomposed. But her family wasn't officially notified until September 11th, 2019. That's when the Bighorn County Sheriff's Department gave the news to Priscilla. The body found on August 29th belonged to Kaysera. So think about that. From August 29th 
to September 11th. That's how long it took for her family to actually know that she had passed. And even then, the police couldn't do a proper death notification. The Bighorn County Sheriff's Office had told her Aunt Priscilla that the body had been ID'd, and then she informed Yolanda. But Kaysera's paternal family was never officially notified by the Bighorn County Sheriff's Department or Bighorn County Coroner. In fact, the police had never even bothered to find out who Kaysera's biological parents were and didn't notify them. So now this family is left with this overwhelming shock and grief upon learning the news. Now, instead of planning searches, they were planning a funeral. But what made it even harder is that they didn't have the answers they needed. And the next day is where things got even sketchier. After Kaysera's body was discovered, she was taken by Bighorn County Coroner Terry Bolas to his personal funeral home before she could be identified by the crime lab. And keep in mind, he is the coroner as well as a mortuary director. He's non-native, and he's the only mortician in town. On the 12th, the day after the family was officially notified, Kaysera's mother, Geraldine, came to Bolas' funeral home. And Terry informed her that in order for Kaysera's remains to be returned to the family, she had to be cremated which this was not true. Not only that, but he said that the family couldn't view the body, so that meant they couldn't perform any cultural rites. At this point, Kaysera's body was still at the Montana Department of Justice Crime Lab in Billings, Montana. Cremation was against Geraldine and her family's wishes, as well as their cultural beliefs. But Geraldine, who was obviously overcome with grief, just wanted her daughter's body returned home. So she signed off on the cremation, even though she didn't want to. What's weird to me is that Bighorn County is somewhere around like 60% indigenous. So how is he not aware that cremation could be against their cultural beliefs? Like, how I just don't understand how you don't know that. He probably did know that, and he just doesn't give a fuck. Probably. I guess. Probably. Especially since he's the only mortician in town. Like, I know. Which is shocking in itself. Yeah. Which I believe the Native American belief regarding cremation is if uh, individual is cremated they're not able to cross over mm. um so there's you know it's just something that they don't do and obviously not only that they do ceremonies and spiritual rites and things like that for their loved ones when they pass and to not have the opportunity to properly say goodbye to your loved one because of this funeral director essentially so is just beyond me i think josh you're in the right path but i think technically they don't cremate because they usually do a some type of ceremony that of like burning the body and then that actually helps them enter the afterlife and you know what's also crazy they made her family pay for the cremation that day like they they like demanded in order to do it that they they pay for it immediately and before other members of Sarah's family could arrive in Hardin Terry ordered her cremation the family wanted to have Kaysera's funeral arrangements handled by Dahl Funeral Home in Billings, Montana, but Terry made the family use his funeral home instead, and he wouldn't even talk about Kaysera's case as coroner until the family paid him for his funeral home services. Kaysera's aunts, Grace and Cedar Bulltail, eventually made it to the mortuary, but by then, Terry had already spoken with Geraldine and taken payment from her. Terry had told Kaysera's aunts that the date of her death was August 26, 2019. Yolanda, Kaysera's legal guardian, and Alan, her biological father, were not notified by Terry about the arrangements to cremate Kaysera. Later that day, Kaysera's father, grandmother, and some of her other family members tried to visit the spot Kaysera's body was discovered, but they couldn't find it. 
since there was no sort of crime scene tape or markings in that area. And they also tried visiting the Bullis mortuary, but it was closed. Every day, Yolanda and her other family members would drive 110 miles back and forth to try and meet with officials in Bighorn County. They just wanted to know what happened to Case Sarah and how her case was being investigated. But they didn't get any help from authorities. The FBI wouldn't talk to them. The Sheriff's Department wouldn't talk to them. Nobody would talk to them. Finally, on the 14th, relatives who lived across the street were able to help Case Sarah's family locate the site where her body was found. And when they saw the site on Mitchell Avenue, they were shocked. It was a busy street. That intersection is the busiest in town, so it's well-trafficked. It didn't make sense that Case Sarah's body could have just sat there for days and gone unnoticed. So luckily, the family was able to get permission from the property owner, Steve Schaff, to perform a cultural ceremony at the site. Steve's yard is very well tended to and cared for, and the family said that in those five days from when Kaysera went missing to when she was discovered, Steve had tended to his lawn. This included mowing the grass, picking up apples that had fallen from the trees, and keep in mind, this spot Kaysera's body was found was right by one of these apple trees. Steve hasn't given any more interviews about Kaysera and hasn't talked to the family. They're not sure why, because knowing what days he went out to tend the yard would be very helpful to their investigation. Grace, Kaysera's aunt, thinks that investigators didn't even ask Steve those sort of questions, which I'm sure she's right about that. Also, and I'm sure a lot of you are already wondering this, if Steve's yard is so well cared for and he's constantly out there tending to it, how did he not see her body sooner? Very strange. And it kind of makes sense of why the investigators didn't want to ask him those questions because they probably know the answer. Also, while they were performing the ceremony, they ran into Jason, the jogger that found Kaysera's body, and he told the family that he watched the police take the phone out of Kaysera's pocket. He told them to charge it so that her family could be notified. Jason also asked the police why the scene hadn't been secured. So it turns out that her phone was found on her when they discovered her body, yet somehow she couldn't be identified for days, even with that piece of key evidence, like you were discussing earlier in the mm -hmm. episode. Like, that is huge. I know. And they didn't even know about it until J until Jason comes by and tells and him, tells like, them. oh, and by the way, like, yeah, they took the phone out of the pocket. Yeah. Luckily, it sounds like the right type of person found her and was yeah. there watching them so that they could at least get that information. This case screams either major incompetence or a cover-up to me mm -hmm. i think a little of both i'm very suspicious of police being involved in her death which i'll elaborate on later but yeah i mean it's definitely possible. seems very possible i mean it's just it, all of the things that are going on just don't make any sense so Sarah's visitation service was set for september 16th at the bullis funeral home but when yolanda showed up for the service that day discovered that case Sarah's remains weren't there how are they just not there for a scheduled visitation grace is going to explain this more in this video clip yeah and he made us schedule her funeral uh without us knowing that her remains would even be back for the funeral and the reason that happened is because the cremate the cremation facilities he sent her to they weren't able to actually cremate her until four days later. And he didn't tell us this because we would have insisted that she be buried. So we had to plan her funeral 
we we didn't have any option of seeing her and her body was just automatically sent to cremation yeah and and actually we weren't even sure that her remains had had been back when we had her funeral so incredibly frustrating i can't even imagine being in that position Terry Bullis's sister informed her that they would arrive in 45 minutes, but then 45 minutes passed and the remains still hadn't been brought to the funeral home. Just imagine being in their, their shoes during this experience. Uh, they're already so traumatized. And what the hell's going on? It's, it's absurd. What, it, what is going, what it's is so actually going on here? It's so outlandish. It's like, it's hard to believe. That's why, that's why my mind's going to a much darker, more sinister cover up going on here. Cause this is mm-hmm. just, Unless it's just how it is up there and just how they treat all indigenous deaths. Like, it just, this just well, doesn't make sense. It kind of like, is how they treat. They just don't care at all. Death. They just yeah. go about their business, what's most convenient for them without mm-hmm. regarding the family. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just insane. Then, outrageously, the family was told that her remains might not be there in time for the funeral the next day. They were then informed that the funeral home was closing soon at 4 p.m. Obviously, the family was outraged, and they refused to leave until Kaysera's remains arrived at the funeral home. At one point, Terry's sister made a defensive comment that the body had been taken back to the crime lab by police escort. Kaysera's ashes did finally arrive at 5.30 p.m. After Kaysera's visitation service, Terry told the family that the autopsy report would take another three to four weeks. Then, shockingly, he told them that when the toxicology report arrived, it would show, quote, show there is a drug or alcohol use detected that the cause would be exposure to alcohol or substance, end quote. And until he received the report, Kaysera's death certificate would be pending. So he's like already like assuming the cause of death mm-hmm. without even having the report yet. Yep. My God. Finally, after so many failed attempts to talk to him, the family was able to get a meeting with Bighorn County Chief Mike Fuss on September 19th. The meeting was not at all what the family expected. He was confused as to who they were, and he thought they were there to talk about a cell phone that was found near the site. Yolanda introduced herself as Kaysera's legal guardian. Again, Captain Fuss was confused. He thought that Priscilla was Kaysera's legal guardian because he claimed she said so. Yolanda pointed out that she had the correct paperwork to prove this, and she asked Captain Fuss if he'd asked for documentation from Priscilla, but he hadn't and just told Yolanda again that Priscilla claimed to be Kaysera's mother. Obviously, their family had a lot of questions. The first being, of course, why hadn't he tried to contact them or return their calls? Captain Fuss said he was busy with other cases. The next question they had was, why was the scene not secured? Captain Fuss said an investigating officer doesn't have to secure the scene if he got to the scene before police did. How does that statement make any sense whatsoever? Like, as the the chief or captain, what does that even mean? And you, we can't secure the scene until the police get there, but the investigating, like, it just, I don't even know what he was trying to say there. Makes no sense. Or a detective gets there, like, what it was, the, no, I don't know. It makes zero sense. I don't know. Trying to understand it. And then obviously they wanted to know why nobody charged Kaysera's phone and then turned it on. Captain Fuss was surprised that they knew about the phone. He claimed that they couldn't get into that type of phone. Not even the FBI could get in to a teenager's phone. Just like lying off the top of their tongue. And that's why none of this stuff makes sense. It's because they're just like making this shit up as they go. And obviously it would make sense to not be able to get into the phone if Kaysera was the suspect of a crime 
obviously they would need a warrant, but she wasn't. With the family permission in these circumstances, Apple is quick to provide law enforcement with access to a phone. And I think at the very least, they could charge it to see the lock screen or maybe check the SIM card for the phone number and go from there in order to at least identify her as soon as possible. Then Captain Fuss told the family that Terry Bullis had snatched the body from the crime lab. That's a direct quote. And he had to get it and take it back. This seemingly explained Terry's sister's defensive comment from the day of the visitation. Mike was almost offended when Yolanda referred to Kaysera's case as a murder. He insinuated that Kaysera died of alcohol poisoning in the spot where she was found. He also looked angry when the family told him they had posted a $5,000 reward for any information in Kaysera's case. Why would he be angry about that? Why do you think? I think they're involved. I know. I think there's police involvement in this. The the more the more and more we get into this, the more I'm I'm convinced that. Well, you think about that car driving through right around that same time. I feel like there was an officer potentially even stalking her that night. Mm-hmm. Happened to be in the neighborhood right at the exact time that they were outside. So that implies to me either it was a huge coincidence he happened to just be driving through the neighborhood at the right time and happened to be there, or he was already out there sitting there waiting. Yeah, and then, it's definitely possible. And the middle said he recuses himself. Like, it, there's just so many weird things here that remind me of other cases where police corruption is rampant. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there are other suspects. There's other. Case, there's and- absolutely other theories. I'm just saying mm-hmm. my my personal opinion is this is that just that doesn't make sense otherwise. Like, I get not caring, not being incompetent, but this is like taking it a step further. This is like taking it. And why would she end up in the backyard of? You know, right. the house that had the alarm, the car alarm going off. It, it really does make no sense. Captain Fuss also told the family that the body was found at 6.43 p.m., but the local paper said she was found in the morning. Yolanda and Alan signed a release of information form so investigators could look at Kaysera's cell phone and social media accounts. That same day, Grace and Cedar Boltail met with Bighorn County attorney Jay Harris. Jay told Grace that he wasn't sure who was leading the investigation due to reorganization and general turmoil. In the sheriff's office, which that that's suspicious too. What do you mean there's turmoil going on? Maybe somebody within the sheriff's office did something and they're trying to figure out what, what they're going to do about it. Possibly. And even he mentioned that Terry Bullis potentially had a conflict of interest serving as both county coroner and funeral home owner. He mentioned that Terry had a habit of quickly determining cause of death as exposure to alcohol and natural causes. The family had to insist that Jay Harris look at Kay Sarah's phone records and have investigators consider them. Jay Harris wouldn't give Grace a clear answer as to whether or not law enforcement were looking to Kay Sarah's social media accounts for evidence. Overall, Jay was very impolite with the family during that meeting. He even made comments like, quote, How do you know that nothing is being done? The family knew nothing was being done because up until this point, nobody had interviewed them or even asked for basic information like Kay Sarah's phone number and cell service provider, among a list of other reasons. On September 23, 2019, a missing and murdered Indigenous Women's March for Kaysera was held. Community members marched from the crime scene on Mitchell Avenue to the Bighorn County Courthouse. They demanded justice for Kaysera and other missing and murdered Indigenous women. On September 27th, Yolanda called her son Justin and told him to call the TIPS hotline with a tip. She didn't trust that the Bighorn County sheriffs were actually using the line. And sure enough, she was right. 
When Justin called, the dispatcher told him there was no officer available to take the call. She refused to take the tip and said that an officer would call back around 7 p.m. But of course, 7 p.m. comes and goes, and Justin didn't get a call back until 9.30 p.m. from none other than Officer Middlestead. And the family, of course, continued to try and pry more information out of investigators, but they were basically being stonewalled. All these officers and officials basically ghosted them and wouldn't return their calls or requests for reports and documents. On October 30th, 2019, another Justice for Sarah protest was held at the Bighorn County Courthouse. These marches have continued and more and more people have shown up to demand justice for Sarah. Finally, in August of 2021, details from Sarah's autopsy report were released. Sarah had no evidence of injury or natural disease, and toxicology screens showed that Sarah had alcohol in her system. At the time of her discovery on August 29th, 2019, her blood alcohol concentration was 0.149. Montana's former chief medical examiner, Dr. Robert Kurtzman, said that in Kaysera's case, it wasn't possible to determine if the level of alcohol concentration found in the toxicology screen came from alcohol consumption, post-mortem production, or some combination of both. Which the human body produces ethanol, a.k.a. alcohol, while it decomposes. And keep in mind, her body was apparently so decomposed that they had to identify her using dental records. So does this mean that there was even alcohol in her system up to 0.149? Probably not. It was probably even lower than that. Yeah, I mean, if she she was probably... I mean, she's very, very far along in the decomposition process. Which there is a lot of contention on that topic as well, because her body was so badly decomposed. A lot of people have raised the idea that maybe some type of agent was used to speed up decomposition, further complicating the investigation. Right. Um, because the temperatures during this time, obviously it's August, it is hot, but they weren't that high. It was like low 70s, mid 60s, um, not enough for her to be in that you know, far stage of decomposition i was gonna say because i'm curious uh, we don't we didn't get access to the autopsy report or anything like that i'm just wondering like the stages or uh, the stage of rigor mortis um you know where that was at because that tells you a lot about how long the body's been decomposing the family has said that multiple medical examiners they've spoken to have said that there was nothing unusual about her blood alcohol concentration or content and it really does appear that the coroner is implying that alcohol was the contributing factor to Kaysera's death. But this is not at all true. I mean, her BAC was at 0.149. You're definitely feeling it. No. Um, but you're nowhere near death. Like, you are you may be experiencing some blurred vision, some loss of coordination and balance, mm -hmm. you know, maybe some anxiety and feeling kind of, like, eh, sick. But... For the most part, people are still like walking, talking, and obviously everyone's different, but your BAC would have to be almost double this percentage before it becomes life-threatening. Mm -hmm. Well, and we already know because of the decomposition that's possible, it was a result of that. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes absolutely no sense. It just seems like they're just trying to find a, a, a theory that fits their narrative, right? Yep. Make an excuse and forget it. Exactly. Basically. It's like, oh, well, it's just another alcohol death or another drug-related death. Oh, well. 
The medical examiner ordered a lot of different drug tests because Jay Harris had told him he suspected drugs were involved in this case, but there were no drugs in case Sarah's system when she died. So he's basically just stereotyping the victim here, which is sick. DNA samples that were taken from her body and under her fingernails did not yield any foreign DNA. Fly larvae were found to be a size consistent with Kaysera passing shortly after she disappeared. The autopsy did not detect any neck injuries. However, it noted that asphyxia as a cause of death could not be excluded. Just to note, the family was originally told the autopsy took place on the 27th, which would have been impossible. Later, they were told it was performed on the 30th. Here's Grace talking about the medical examiner's conclusions. The state crime lab actually told me the 27th, and that was the wrong date. It was the 30th of August, and I did speak to the medical examiner. He told me that he had to write down on her autopsy that the cause of death was undetermined, but in that report, he does not rule out asphyxiation. He told me that he... He thinks it is asphyxiation, but he he wasn't able to prove that. Um, but it, it's not ruled out. They couldn't prove it because of the condition of her body. In his report, did not rule that out. Her death was noted as suspicious, and the cause and manner of death of Kaysera's death was classified as undetermined, like we just heard. The autopsy report noted that this could change if more information came out in the future, which is so, so frustrating. because. Based on what we know, it seems very, very likely this is homicide. I mean, it's almost like mm-hmm. certain obvious, that it's homicide. Yeah. Yet, because of how her body was found, the medical examiner is not able to, or isn't willing, mm-hmm. I should say, mm-hmm. to make a determination in her as a, as a, for a cause of death. And so it just puts undetermined, and that just leaves it in this limbo stage right where it's not one or the other it just kind of is like well i don't know basically and until i get some more details or information then i I can't do anything about it so it just doesn't this doesn't make any sense whatsoever how is it possible that she just lays down and dies nobody sees her they can't claim hypothermia or any medical conditions and again 0.15 percent blood alcohol content is not going to kill you so and that's the thing is like, even if you were drunk laying down, like somebody would eventually come get you mm-hmm. a neighbor, somebody walking by would have seen her way before it would have ever escalated to the point where she would have passed away in that yard and been laying there for days decomposing. And she was just running before. Right. You know, this probably happened. So. Right. It, it just how, doesn't add up know, whatsoever. She had been. Yeah, it really doesn't. And again, they said they couldn't rule out asphyxia, including asphyxia by assault. So and that and that's asphyxia. See, if, if uh, it's just so hard because there is ways to tell, obviously, if somebody is is murdered by asphyxia or assaulted that way. But again, because she's been out there for so yeah. long, it's just it makes that much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Despite all of these highly suspicious circumstances and the gross mishandling of Kaysera's case, her death has still not been properly investigated. The FBI said they wouldn't investigate her death because the case is not in their jurisdiction. The FBI has a trust duty to investigate when a tribal citizen living on a reservation goes missing and found murdered. Kaysera's body was found in Hardin, and the location was a half mile away from the Crow Reservation border. So that would technically be out of their jurisdiction. 
but they have no evidence that she was not murdered on the reservation. And apparently the three people Kaysera was fighting with the night she went missing were questioned by the police, but we don't know anything beyond that. Now let's circle back to Terry Bullis. Obviously, he showed horrible behavior to Kaysera's family, but he also has prior misconduct allegations. Terry was accused of using his positions as both mortuary owner and coroner to line his pockets. He embalmed the body of a 21-year-old, Toy Parker, without her family's permission. In January of 2002, Toy died in a car accident in Lame Deer, Montana. As the coroner, Terry took Toy's body and brought it back to his funeral home in Hardin. Then he embalmed her body and took her to the hospital to be x-rayed, all before her family was even notified of her death. Later that day, Toy's grandmother found out about her passing, and she asked a mortician in Lame Deer named Fred to handle the arrangements. But Terry told Fred that he wouldn't release the body until he paid the $410 embalming fee. In Montana, embalming is not required by law. Bodies have to either be embalmed or refrigerated after 48 hours. But Terry's mortuary had working refrigeration facilities. Fred said that embalming bodies quickly was a habit of Terry's. In fact, so much so that Fred kept cash on hand to pay the fee because he knew Terry would have already done it. Terry said that he embalmed Toy's body because refrigeration can dry out a body, and embalming is better for preserving evidence. He also said he embalmed Toy because he didn't know how long it would take the police to find and contact her family. He was disciplined for his ethics in the Toy Parker case. He was required to take an ethics course and was placed on professional probation for a year. He was also forced to refund the family $410 for embalming Toy without permission. Also, Kay Sarah's um, family's lawyer actually filed a complaint against Terry and wanted his license revoked, but the Montana State Board of Funeral Services chose not to revoke it. Bighorn County attorney Jay Harris said previously that Kay Sarah's case is suspicious, but later in August of 2021, he released an investigative report that was criticized by Kay Sarah's family. Jay said that he made this report to, quote, help ensure public confidence in the local criminal justice process and so that people could understand why nobody had been prosecuted in case Sarah's death. The end of the report mentions that the case remains active and open. But Grace has said that this report was super victim-blamey and all it did was investigate case Sarah's character instead of treating her like the victim of a crime. She said that Jay has, quote, always taken the position that Kaysera was troubled and that she did this to herself. Here's what Grace had to say about Jay Harris. All the county attorney has done is just continue to dismiss my family and to continue to give interviews to everyone that comes along asking about MMIW and spending hours with them, but cannot do his job and give us this basic information that we are entitled to. Because what's best for their PR, right? Exactly. We'll say we're doing a bunch of stuff, but we're not. They're not going to go check to make sure we actually are. But she knows, and I think all of us here can agree, that Kaysera did not do this to herself. She didn't just end up dead in someone's yard, and the family has yet to see so much as a police report on case Sarah's death. In their petition, they're demanding that Jay releases all information that they've already requested. Many people, and I'm sure some of you will agree, 
think that the police treated her case the way that they did because of that altercation they had with her brother and the video that she posted. And Hardin, like we mentioned earlier, is a town on the border of the Crow Reservation lands. There are a lot of Native people that live in Hardin, but the town is still majority white, and some of the population there hold prejudices against the Native people that live nearby. So tensions in the town can get pretty high. Plus, violence against Native people is kind of just accepted as part of the culture there. So someone who potentially had these prejudices and knew that MMIW cases aren't investigated very well or at all could have murdered Kaysera. The sheriff's office treated her case the way they did in part due to apathy towards solving cases involving missing Indigenous people. That's because to Bighorn County Sheriff's Department, Indigenous people who go missing in Hardin or off the reservation are considered non-residents. So the sheriff's office has to decide whether or not to put resources into stopping crime in town or searching for non-residents. They wouldn't even talk to Kaysera's family for many weeks. When the family finally did get in touch with them, they were shocked to hear what the sheriff's office thought happened to Kaysera. They said she walked to the yard she was found in and died there. Then she laid there for five days until the jogger finally found her. Remember, from the clips that we've showed you, this was a main road that had cars passing by every few seconds. There is no way that nobody saw her for five days. Doesn't make any sense. The family believes that Kaysera died the night she went missing, and she did not die at the location she was found. Rather, she was murdered somewhere else, and her body was then conveniently brought back and placed in that spot, which I 100% believe. I do too. And many friends and family members believe that there is a cover-up going on, and I'm right there with them. I 100% think there's a cover-up going on here. Grace Boltail strongly believes that Natosi and Isabella had something to do with Kaysera's death. She has publicly identified them as suspects at this point, and they were questioned by the police. But like we mentioned earlier, we don't know the results of that questioning. And we have no evidence that these interviews actually happened at all. In 2021, investigators told Kaysera's family that they had no leads and no persons of interest in the case. The family has yet to receive a police report. So they've never seen crime scene photos that they've asked for or anything along those lines. In other words, it's now up to law enforcement to prove the details of this case, like how her body was allegedly found with plastic and everything and, you know, all the other questions that they have. Kaysera's aunts, Grace and Cedar Boltail, created a beautiful cap and gown in Kaysera's honor. Both Hardin High School and Missoula Hellgate High School awarded Kaysera with posthumous graduations. Her family misses her every day. They just want those who stole Kaysera's life and her dreams to be brought to justice. And they're not going to rest until they get that justice. There's been a bunch of MMIW task forces created since Kaysera has passed, but Grace Bulltail said that none of these task forces have really helped with Kaysera's case at all. The same goes for elected officials they've reached out to. The BIA Missing and Murdered Unit, or MMU Task Force, could investigate Kaysera's case, but only if the Bighorn County Sheriff consents to that since Kaysera was not found on federal land. But of course, the Sheriff's Department refuses to consent or help in any way whatsoever. But they're not going to stop fighting for justice. It's horrible that they've had to do pretty much all the investigating themselves with no help from police since day one. But they are determined to bring Kaysera justice, and part of that includes bringing awareness to her case and demanding answers from the agencies that have a trust duty to protect her and other MMIW like her. So anyone with information on Kaysera's death is asked to call the Missoula County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Unit at 
1-800-273-4810. The public can also submit tips to the family through the family's attorney at justiceforcaysera.org. So I did want to bring something up because I've been kind of saying I believe that there is a police cover up here and I was very interested to see what happens if I Google Bighorn County Sheriff's Department corruption mm-hmm. and look what I found here. Check this out. So to, to no surprise at all, this Sheriff's Department has a rampant history mm-hmm. of corruption and criminal acts committed by sheriff and sheriff's deputies. Going back to a report from 2013, Bighorn County Sheriff Lawrence Big Hair was arraigned Monday in Crow Tribal Court on three counts of domestic abuse endangering the welfare of children and bribery charges. Then we have a $50,000 warrant has been issued for the rest of Bighorn County Coroner Daryl Craig Nordquist, who is wanted for felony attempted aggravated burglary. This was in 2022. Then you go and see there's another article about uh, charges against hardened police chief and officer. And this particular was uh, about excessive force. So there's rampant reports of excessive force happening from not only hardened police officers, but Bighorn Sheriff's deputies. There was another uh, case from 2005 of excessive force used by the Bighorn County Sheriff's Office. So to me, that tell that that says a lot that this department has a lot of covering up to do from all of these things that they've done over the years. And the last thing that they want is for somebody to come in and investigate them. Right. Yeah. And so when they mess up Hmm. and they don't do things correctly, the easiest thing to do is to sweep it under the rug and basically act like it never happened. But I'm also not convinced that Middlestead was not involved in this this death or this murder. Yeah, I would agree. I, sure. I he there's something very very sketchy about him mm-hmm. and all of his actions in this particular case. The yeah. fact that he's the responding officer, he seems to always be around where Kaysera is yeah. or her family are. I think you cannot deny or you know, put it out of your mind that connection between the attack on her brother the video being posted and then what happens to her and him being the first to respond and then recusing himself. It's all very, very sketchy. I mean, let's not forget that Bighorn County, Montana is the most dangerous place for indigenous women in America. But I think there is something else going on in Bighorn County that's much darker and sinister than we even know to probably create this issue and <clears throat> bring them to the top of of the leaderboard for this because 27 cases mm-hmm. alone yeah in hardened montana recently yeah and they have all these excess i mean her brother was clearly a victim of police brutality excessive force is it possible is it possible one of their officers assaulted her abducted her did something to her. Yeah, I think it's and then possible. Because he knew she was at Natosi's house because he could have been out there watching and watched the whole thing went down, picked her up. He happened to be in the air and then took her and then placed her there after he did what he did allegedly. in order to allegedly, obviously, to make it look like mm-hmm. it was Natosi and yeah. Isabella. I mean, it's possible or it really was Natosi. 
possibly I mean, the way he was acting last night you, can't, you definitely like can't rule right it out. i mean you can't rule it out his behavior seemed to be very erratic and they were you know yeah. there, was, there was it's hard to say which domestic way going on but eileen i don't know grace um strongly seems to believe that natosi and isabel could have been involved as well allegedly um janelle do you have any way that you lean you and i were talking about this earlier i'm I believe it was police corruption, really, and just, like, the full-on lack of... See, I don't know, because it is very weird that she was in the lawn for so many days, mm -hmm. decomposed... Like we were saying, looking at the footage, people are driving by, people are walking by, the guy takes good care of his lawn. Right. So, why was she laying there, quote-unquote, for so long before someone found her? Mm -hmm. I also think it's very suspicious that she got into this fight and it was arguing and there was a lot of tension the night that you know she went missing and I would say that I have I have reservations saying fully that Natosi and Isabella were involved mm -hmm. it definitely seems a little sketchy but I don't feel comfortable like really right like getting on we don't really have enough yeah, evidence that exactly that. but I will say that I think it was definitely police corruption and just negligence yeah yeah but i think at the very least they could do a little investigation into natosi and isabella i mean mm -hmm. what's the harm in at least talking to them and mm -hmm. kind of digging a little bit deeper yeah i mean in in these types of cases i think it's always difficult because there's a lot there in because there was no investigation we have so much evidence leading us at least leading me towards the police here mm -hmm. and them potentially being involved because they didn't do an investigation into any possible persons of interest or anything like that. So it's hard to say if it's one or the other. It's absolutely possible that this was just a potentially a domestic violence case that mm -hmm. that went really, really, really bad and somebody ended up dead as a result. Based on what I know of the individuals, I don't I, I don't know that much. Right. And from the little that I do know, I don't know that there's enough to say that they had something to do with this. I mean, if you think about it, what, how would that have, I feel like more people would have known what happened that night. There'd be more details from what we know. It's so little and it's so vague that unless somebody's trying to protect these individuals, there's no, it's almost like she vanishes off the street that night. Mm -hmm. She leaves the house Natosi's chasing them in the car and then all of a sudden she just poof, she disappears. Yeah. I just find it really strange that in this moment where potentially Natosi or another individual is abducting her against her will and there's a police officer in the area that there wouldn't have been more eyewitnesses or wouldn't have been more of a scuffle or, or something going on that somebody saw something for us for us to go down that road. That, I think this is so hush-hush and so eerie about how quiet this was and how it just almost like just picked off of the street and disappeared and gone. Mm -hmm. And then she shows up five days later, decomposed, conveniently placed next to, because think about, think about this, like from the mind of a criminal for a second, why on earth would you, if you're the killer, why would you bring the victim right to basically next door to you and leave them there? That well, doesn't make any sense. If someone brought her there, they clearly wanted her to be found and she was left in such an open area too. Well, that's what I'm saying is what if that's where I'm like, I, Natosi, it's next to Natosi's house. If him or Isabella were involved in this, why would no, they bring that, them back to that? Makes, yeah. That to me makes no sense. Like you would from think, a, 
they'd criminal be like, standpoint. exactly. Oh, okay. I just killed her. We are, we're aware of the fact that it is not hard to find open land where you could go and right. leave her. Why would right. you do it right in the neighborhood? Right. But like, you're not burying her. You just like left her there that over the fence when there's so sense. many other, you're not in the middle of. Yeah. This is you a know. huge, vast area exactly. out there where you could easily make people disappear all the time. Right. Why on earth, if you're going to do this, do this to somebody, would you put them right next to your house? Yeah. All then all sign. That's like beating a path right to your door, especially if you're the last one of the last people to be seen with her. This is where I go to somebody observed this incident that night saw an opportunity, took her, murdered her, yeah. then days later brought her back and conveniently dumped her in the spot where they hoped it would lead back to somebody else. I think this yeah. is somebody trying to frame them potentially. Yeah, all of that makes total sense. And I think we can all agree for the most part here that she did not die in that location. No. In our opinion. I mean, so many different reasons why obviously the fence being too high for her to even go into why would she go get in the yard of the person who's setting off this car alarm that makes no sense i agree i really think i definitely lean towards police involvement i keep going back to the car coming by that night when they all scattered and just the and way they've acted so about weird. this like yeah. yes they're they're they probably act they act similarly to this in other cases with mm -hmm. mmiw but Victims, it's like this is just almost to another level where it's so sketchy and they're so quiet, so quiet that even after more and more, I mean, there's a Showtime documentary. I mean, more awareness. We saw she was interviewed. You know, one of the family was interviewed on CNN. So there's been enough awareness to this that the fact that the police aren't getting like what what do they have to lose to now try to do something about this? And, and it, it only helps them better their reputation and, and better their PR. Why are they being so hushed still if they aren't protecting somebody within the department who may have been involved in this in some way, shape or form? Do you think if that is the case that they worked in tandem with the coroner? For all we know that he could be, I mean, for all we We've know, seen it before. for all we know, there could be a whole operation in this town. And that sounds very far-fetched, but I've covered... I mean, the whole story is far-fetched. I've covered think. serial killers who are literally... The, somebody like the mortician in town mm -hmm. who is making all these young boys disappear right under everybody's noses. They had no idea. They never would suspect this individual. And it comes to find out that was what was happening. Yeah. Especially with them, him pressuring so much to have her cremated. And yeah. yeah. And the fact that he's rushing to embalm, like there's definitely something sketchy. There is a sketchy criminal element to this county and Hardin, Montana that is taking advantage of these indigenous women full well knowing that they're not going to get caught. There's going to be no oh, yeah. investigation because likely the individuals involved in this operation are within the sheriff's department, have far reaches within the government, and therefore nothing is being done about it. They're not investigating, not doing anything whatsoever. I mean, that that to me seems like the only logical explanation here. Otherwise, why not do something? Why not at least say something? They're not even mm -hmm. saying anything. Mm -mm. You can't even get a response from them. No. So why? Why are you being so quiet unless you got something to hide? That's all I got to say. Yeah, I completely agree. I definitely lean in that direction it's, as well. It, it's, I feel like a lot of people are like, 
Josh, that's far fetched like that. But I'm like, no, I don't think I don't think people think that I, I just I've seen it so many times and learned about so many different cases where the the ones that are there supposedly protect you are the ones actually doing the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And I just pulled up four or five examples of yep. corruption within the department to the highest level. The sheriff himself being indicted on charges. We've been to a town in Mississippi where sheriff was literally committing criminal acts, had to be removed from mm-hmm. power. I mean, this is happening. Oh, yeah. In rural America, there is so much corruption within the local governments and, and law enforcement that it is mind blowing. Mm-hmm. It is, it, it's just crazy. And there's nothing the people there can do about it because it stems back 100, 200 years from the inception of the town. I mean, that's how far this stuff goes back. And that's what you start realizing. It's so deeply rooted here that there is no way to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And so it just continues and continues and continues. And more and more people fall victim to it. It's, it's horrific. It, it really is. Well, we want to hear from all of you on your thoughts on the case overall. I highly doubt really any of you are going to believe that she just drank too much and therefore died at the location where she was found. I think most of you, if not all of you, are going to lean either police involvement or Natosi and Isabella. Or there's always the possibility of this is a crime of opportunity from some unknown of course. individual yeah. who maybe happened to be in the area that just happened to see this happen, you know, that we just... We'll never know. That could have been a trucker driving through. Somebody stopped at the re- the gas station to fuel up and they took advantage of the this situation. I yeah. do sometimes wonder, know. too, if there was... It's hard to tell because she was so far far decomposed, but maybe they tried to, like, kidnap her or something and then there was some type of struggle or, you know, she fought back. I don't know. And then ended up dying. They ended up killing her, even if it wasn't necessarily their plan originally. And they're like, oh, shit, we got to get the hell out. So they just dump her body and keep rolling yeah. out. Yeah, that's that's totally possible as well. So yeah, we want to hear from you guys what you what you think. Maybe a, a theory that we haven't even brought up yet. Also, we would like to point you guys in the direction of Justice for Hey Sarah on Change.org. They have a petition going on, and at the time of this recording, they are only four thousand signatures away from three hundred thousand. So let's get them to that goal and beyond if we can. I mean, there are thousands of you that listen to this show, so we'd like to see you know as many of you. It's really easy. I mean, it is it signing the seconds. petitions on change.org is is a no brainer. Just go and do it. it. Takes a few seconds, and mm-hmm. it really does help the family out. Also, there's a GoFundMe if you feel so inclined. A dollar even helps. So yeah, we'll de- put that link down below. Definitely um, take a look at that GoFundMe. Like like Josh said, anything helps, and we will definitely be making a donation on behalf of Mile Higher Media as well. Because again. There needs to be an investigation there. Somebody is responsible for Kaysera's murder and they are still out there. And, you know, until they're brought in, there's always potential for more victims. So go, go check out the links. We'll, we'll have them below. Also for more resources on missing and murdered indigenous women and this, that whole crisis, visit www.niwrc.org. But that is it for us today. We will see you guys next time. And as always, keep on taking your mind a mile higher. We'll see you next time. Bye.